We are in uh, the book of Revelation, so turn with me to Revelation chapter 8. And um, my attempt is going to be, and, I'm, and I know I'm going to be pressing this, is to get down to verse 12 of chapter 9. But I think um, there's a possibility that could happen. I've got notes for it. Um, and we're getting, entering the section that's just called the, the, that I've just entitled Trumpets of Judgment. Um, there's going to be um, six trumpets that blast, that bring forth judgment. The seventh trumpet will open up into uh, seven bowls of judgment. Um, but as we look at this, we are told in chapter 7 that the Lord uh, held back angels from bringing any judgment because there needed to be 144,000 Jews sealed from the 12 tribes of Israel so that no harm could come upon them. And that has been done, and so now as, you, as we move into chapter 8, the, seven, uh, the seventh seal will be opened, and the seventh seal is going to give way to the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet gives way to the seven bowls. So, um, uh, you, you know, it's just kind of, in, in one sense, the seventh seal is the trumpets and the bowls together, if you follow what I'm saying there. So you had six seals, and then the seventh seal was opened, which led to the blasting of seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet, we'll find, is going to open up the, uh, the final set of judgments, which are called the bowl judgments. So there are these three sets of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Now the question is, do these run sequentially through the seven-year period? So you have the, the six seals, seventh then starts that, and you're going kind of chronologically through the uh, tribulation period. And, and that is without, there's questions for sure, but that's kind of where I fall. Um, others would, um, would say that, no, these are more layered. These are um, running sequential. They're all happening at the same time. Um, and they're layered. And each one of these, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, they're all kind of giving different vantage points of the same time period. So you can you can run with that and see what you come up with. Um, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what we're reading about is intense judgment coming upon the world. And God is the one that is pouring out his wrath to judge the nations and to wake up a nation, the nation of Israel. So we move into chapter 8, verse 1. It says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. This is an ominous silence. This is the kind of silence that when you have sat down to talk with somebody and it's very tense and they're just quiet and that silence just is deafening, this is that kind of silence. It's so sober what is about to come and be unleashed upon the earth that there's a solemnity to the opening of this seventh seal that's going to lead to these trumpets of judgment. Verse 2, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God, from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and earthquake. So the, uh, so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So in this scene that we have right here, um, we have this golden censer. And, and we, we get kind of some familiar imagery. You know, there's not maybe a whole lot that's super familiar to us when you go through the book of Revelation. But we have an altar. We're familiar with that. That altar that was there in the temple of Solomon. Um, we know that there was a sacrifice that would happen there. We know there was an altar of incense. We know that the priest had censers and they would take coals from the altar. They would put them in these censers. They would bring them in. They would put it on the um, altar of incense which was in the the, uh, the holy place, 
So that you have the, you know, the Holy of Holies at most, where the Ark of the Covenant is that most holy place. And you have the holy place, which is that other section where the table of showbread was, where you had the seven, uh, or the candelabra. Um, and, and then there was this altar of incense that was just outside the veil that would take you into the Holy of Holies. And they would, they would bring um, coals from the altar. They would throw incense on it. And it would create this cloud um, which was symbolic of the presence of the Lord. But um, we also see that this is tied in with the, um, the prayers of the saints. So which prayers are we talking about here? What are the prayers we're talking about? Well, it, it probably is the prayers of those in, uh, that were in the tribulation and were praying that had been martyred and saying, Lord, avenge us. And now the Lord is going to avenge now what comes after is the judgment that's coming upon those that had put this innumerable host of believers that have come to faith during the tribulation to death, and the Lord is about to, to do this. You know, the trumpets, um, this is another familiar scene. Um, we see those, whenever Israel would have a, mild, a meeting, they would blow the trumpet. They had the silver trumpets, they had the shofar uh, trumpet, um, and they would call these meetings. There was a call to prayer. Um, if they had a festival, they would blow the trumpet. If they were going to go to war, when they marched around Jericho, uh, when a king was inaugurated, um, these trumpets, however, they're announcing that judgment is coming upon the earth. These first four trumpets are going to be recorded here. And then the next three trumpet blasts are also called woes. So the first four are bad, but the last three whoa, they're bad. They are really bad. You know, the use of incense um, in, in the temple, during the days of temple worship, the priests had this job to maintain that altar of incense um, near the Ark of the Covenant. That whole scene in the temple um, that we see in Solomon, Moses, of course, had that in the tabernacle, tabernacle and it was modeled when they built the, the, the structure during Solomon's day. But all of that was made after a uh, was made after another one. There was a prototype, and that prototype, that one that is the original one, is in heaven, and that's what we're reading about here. There's a temple in heaven, and the one on earth that was in the tabernacle and then was at the permanent structure of the temple by Solomon. This modeled that, and so of course, at this point in time um, in Israel's history, when John is writing. Some 96 AD, that temple's been destroyed. But the, but the one after which it was modeled is still present. And we see that there's this moving around and this is taking place. Um, in Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, we read, So it was that while he was serving as a priest, this is Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, uh, before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord, and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense, or the hour of prayer. So when he would go and, um, and, and throw the, uh, the coals and the incense on that altar, it would, there would be this smoke and this beautiful aroma that would, would fill the, the tabernacle. But people were praying outside. The idea is, as this incense rose, so the prayers were rising. And may it be sweet to the Lord as our prayers come before Him. And so we are looking at this scene up in heaven, something that was very uh, similar. And Psalm 141, verse 2, it says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. I, you know, I love this thought when I'm worshiping the Lord or when I'm praying. I love to just kind of like, all right, you know, we, we um, worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. We don't have a, a physical structure that the Lord has appointed, right? We are the structure. We are the living stones and we are being fit together. We, are, we collectively are the temple of the Lord. But when they would go, they would offer the sacrifices. There would be this incense. There would be um, all of these prescribed activities they were to engage in in worship. And I love, like even tonight as we were lifting our hands, um, it's like the evening sacrifice. 
You're lifting your hands, and as the Lord looks down upon this, and he sees your hand lifted up in this sacrifice of, of praise, this sacrifice of your Lord over my life, this sacrifice of, of, of saying, God, you know, you are the one who does good things. You are the, the victor. You are the one that I sing hallelujahs to. It's like that, that evening sacrifice that's being offered to the Lord. Or when we pray, it's like that incense that would come up from the temple. And the Lord sees this coming from his temple, the church. We are the temple of God. And he dwells within us and he's in our midst. He walks in the midst of our lampstand. So I just encourage you, when you pray, to think about that incense just rising before the Lord. I mean, in the, in the temple, and it wasn't by accident, you had the Holy of Holies where uh, you know, the Shekinah glory of the Lord resided. And the thing that was closest to that was that altar of incense and the prayers. And our prayers ascend before the Lord as that incense. Our lifting up of our hands is as the evening sacrifice. So their prayers for the Lord to bring judgment and to set up his kingdom upon the earth is being answered. But the Lord answers all prayers, doesn't he? And I know they well, all prayers, I don't know about all prayers. No, he answers every prayer. Every prayer is answered. Sometimes the prayer is answered just as it was delivered to the Lord. Just as we bring it to the Lord, we ask for something to work and move in a certain way, and that's exactly what he does. There are other times when we've prayed for something and we've gotten the answer of no. And you know what? Some of those prayers, some of those answers are some of the best answers you've ever gotten. Think about some of the things you've prayed for that haven't happened. You're like, thank you, Jesus. I am so glad you did not answer that prayer of mine. And then we can look at and see that sometimes the Lord answers yes, but he's gonna, it's going to be delayed. Because there's a timing element. Have you ever noticed in Scripture that timing is really key? I mean, you know, the children of Israel are so glad that the Red Sea did not part like a week before they got there. Timing is very key. Miracles uh, in Scripture, you know, so often it's the timing of when the events took place. And so sometimes we're praying for the Lord to do something. And the Lord's like, I'm going to answer that, but not right now. And it's almost like he's like, uh, you know, this is going to be, your prayer right now is right, but it's, there's no sweet smelling aroma because it's lacking the timing. So let me add a little bit of timing into your prayer. And then it's going to be sweet. And maybe that's where you are tonight. You've been praying for something and the Lord has not answered it yet, but you cannot let go of praying for it. You just continue to feel compelled to pray for that thing and it just hasn't happened. Well, maybe the Lord is just waiting for the right timing. And at the right timing, he's going to answer that. And it will be, as David said, let my prayer be set before you as incense. Lord, when it's right, ignite my prayer and let that incense be sweet to you. We need to be careful that we do not neglect the privilege of prayer. And that's what it is. The privilege of prayer. To bring your request before the Lord. You know, we, can, we make a big deal, you know, about certain people getting in front of other certain people who are of influence to bring a case or to bring a request or something. Hey, could you ask so-and-so for me? Because they have access to that person. And, and yet we have access to the person of all persons. To God himself. Who invites us to come into his throne room of grace to receive mercy and help in our time of need. He, prayer is God's idea. It's not your idea. It's not my idea. It wasn't the priest's idea. Prayer is God's idea. It's God's idea that his people would come and share and ask of him the things that they have need of. But the challenge to prayer is steadfastness. That's the challenge. Let me read to you. Luke 18, verses 1 and 8. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. For the sake of time, I'm just going to... That sets the context, verse 1. Now, verse 8. 
I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will he really find faith? The context is praying and believing. Jesus saw that there was a a challenge to prayer and it was a steadfastness. Are men going to have faith to pray in the last days? Mark chapter 14, verses 37 through 38. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that is true. The Spirit is willing in your life to pray and to ask the Lord for the things that you have need of. But the Lord says, can't you pray for an hour? Twice that I know of, the Lord's like, you know, you can't pray for an hour. And when I come back, I wonder if I'm going to find people praying. So the Lord acknowledges that prayer is a challenge. Okay, so it's a challenge. What are you going to do about it? Prayer is something that we have to discipline ourselves. I, I really hate to use that, that word when we talk about having a conversation with God because like disciplines, like I got to take my vitamins every day and work out and do those things I don't want to and be you know, good on my diet. and I've got to be disciplined. And then we say I got to be disciplined to talk to the Lord. We would be offended if anybody said that about us. And I got to be disciplined. It's really tough to keep it up, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down and talk with you today as much as I don't want to. We would all be offended. Praise the Lord. He is so gracious and merciful towards us. But it is a great privilege that we have. And, um, you know, I I just want to encourage you in your own personal life to pray. But I also want to encourage you in your corporate life of the body of Christ to pray. This is what the early church did. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and what? Prayers. It's what they did. And continued steadfastly. They gave unremitting care to the doctrine and to prayer. It's easy for us to put an emphasis upon doctrine and teaching. It's more difficult for us to do that on prayer. But this is what the Lord would have. So continue to press in to be a man or woman of prayer. I don't care how many times you've missed the mark or you have failed to be the man or woman. The Lord wants you to be a prayer. I'm not here to make you feel guilty tonight, okay? I don't, I'm, not here. I'm not trying to guilt you into coming out to the prayer meetings. Because honestly, if you don't want to pray, don't come. Because joining together in a corporate prayer meeting with people who don't want to pray is no fun. You know, you want people that are focused and ready to pray. But I I think that you'll find that one of the best meetings we have at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg is Sunday night encounter service. When we pray, we spend extended time in worship and waiting upon the Lord, and we're praying, and we're praying for each other. And it is a, you know, the number one thing that people say about Sunday night prayer, it is so sweet. That's, the, that's what people say. It's just so sweet on Sunday nights. And I, and I would agree. It is a good time to be in the presence of the Lord. That may not work, and I don't want you to feel guilty. But we have our home fellowships where there's prayer going on. There's other times. Just start praying. Start praying. Keep on praying. Redeem the time. Turn the radio off. Put your phone down. And pray. Talk to the Lord. Well, we keep on moving. Verse 7, it says, The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. What does that remind you of in Scripture? Anybody got a, what does it remind you of? California. <laughs> it's not in Scripture. Um, <laughs> definitely not in Scripture. Sodom and Gomorrah, it's already gone. Otherwise, it would be California. But no, what... what Hell coming down. What about the plagues of Egypt? As we go through this, just kind of you're going to see some, some things that kind of remind you of this. So this first trumpet brings devastating destruction to the earth. It's Greenpeace's worst day ever, okay? The Sierra Club is going to go nuts when the first trumpet sounds. Because the end result is a third of the trees are going to be burned up and all the green grass is going to be burned up. Both for man and beast, the result is food is going to be scarce. 
What are the consequences of, of losing a third of the vegetation? Not to mention hailstones that are on fire hitting planet Earth and, you know, mingled with the blood of men. Just, I mean, this is going to be a devastating scene. It's hard to determine what the exact judgment is. What is this thing? And I think we can make a mistake by trying to spend too much time of trying to figure out what this stuff is because John is using a, a lot of similes and metaphors to try and describe something that's indescribable. And so I think we can, we, we can certainly dig in and we can look and we can read, but we must be careful that we don't press the text further than the text would allow us to do. So this trumpet may have known, uh, may have no earthly explanation. There might not be anything we can look and say, well, this is this and that kind of, uh, it's hard to see. The sky is falling. Chicken Little was right after all. You know what I mean? It's coming down. And this is a scary moment. The second trumpet, verses 8 and 9, the second angel sounded in something like a great mountain. Is it a great mountain? It's something like a great mountain. Burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. So what, what is this? I don't know. Maybe it's some massive volcano that just launches, you know, the top half of a mountain. And, you know, you look at some of the... Uh, studies they've done about the, the volcanoes that took place in Yellowstone and stuff. I mean, they're just unbelievable that have happened before. So maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's a meteor. Didn't actually, didn't something just hit, didn't something just hit the earth like two days ago? St. Louis or something like that? I think something hit the ground. I don't know. But um, it, it's, it, you know, NASA tracks all these asteroids and, you know, something comes out of that belt, an asteroid gets kind of loose and comes and strikes the earth. It, it happens. But this is something, that's, is something that's crazy because it hits the sea and um, it becomes blood. Um, what exactly that is, don't know. Color of, 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 of blood. Uh, maybe it's just all the death that takes place because of the, plant, um, the uh, marine life that dies, because of the, the ships that are hit. But again, a third of the sea a third of the ships, a third of the living creatures. Again, devastating impact upon, um, of course, um, trade, but also, again, food. The trees are gone. Now a third of marine life is gone. Verses 10 and 11. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, or, or bitter. A third of the waters became Wormwood, bitter, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. So everything, the fresh water, the salt water, vegetation life, it is something that's going. Now, listen, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. So it was burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers. And there are many who will look, and they'll, they'll try to say, hey, this is some... Modern, this is man's doing. So, you know, something like a, a torch, burning like a torch, a rocket that goes, you know, is launched by man with some kind of nuclear warhead on it, and it goes, but it ends up falling out and lands in the, um, in the, in the freshwater streams. Okay, I mean, it can. Yeah, I mean, that, that is certainly something that could happen. But to say with any kind of degree of confidence that this is a nuclear warhead that's flying through the, you can't do that. It's something burning like a torch. So maybe it is something that is uh, known um, to us on, even at this very hour. And when it happens, it'll make sense. Or maybe it's something totally different. And, um, and, and this is where I'm saying we just got to be careful about not pressing things too far. But you can see, I mean, the, the world is in a desperate place. And we're only through three of these trumpet blasts. Verse 12, Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, likewise the night. So something is going on in the heavens. Something is taking place. Um, you know, it certainly could, part of it could be darkened because of the fires that are on earth. 
You have these hailstones that are hitting the ground, uh, mingled with fire. I mean, you, you know, you have a third of the vegetation being wiped out, massive fires going on. So maybe it's, it's you know, blocking them out this way, or maybe this is a special judgment that's um, happening against, um, against, you know, the these bodies that are in the heavens. But a lot of this reminds us of the types of things, the darkness that came during you know, the plagues in Egypt, the, the, the blood in the water, the hailstones, very similar um, to what took place then. Verse 13, And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven. I don't know what that sounds like, but something saying with a loud voice, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, this is, yeah, the 30 minutes of silence, and now you have the three woes by this mighty angel that's flying through the heavens. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So as you move into chapter 9, and we're going to make it into chapter 9, there's a shift um, going into looking at these three woes. So um, again, we've come out of the seventh seal, or we're in the seventh seal, which are the, the trumpet blasts, and then within the trumpet blasts, they're also further designated as woes. So we'll go ahead and begin to look at, at, at that. Let's, um, and before we do that, though, before we do that, I'm going to take a moment, um, more than a moment, I'm going to take a few minutes here. And, and I want to do a little background study because <laughs> what we're going to see, what I believe we see happening in um, Revelation chapter 9, is some of the, it's one of the spookiest chapters in all of Scripture. The abuso is going to be opened and these demonic, locust-like animals are going to come out. Uh, insects. Now, are they just... We'll talk about that in a minute. But they're coming out from Abusa where they, the demons have been held. The worst of the demons have been held. It's where Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years. A shaft is going to be opened and they're going to come out of here and they're going to torment men upon the earth. And then we're going to see um, another 200 million uh, person army. I almost said man, but I don't think they're men. I don't think this is, uh, you know, some said this is, you know, you know you know, Red China's army. I don't think so. And we'll read it and you'll see why. Because it doesn't sound anything like them. But, um, but you have, but, you know, we live at this time right now. And for the most part, there is the spiritual realm and there's the, the earthly realm. And, and we don't see it. We don't, every now and then we get an experience with maybe somebody who's demon possessed. Or you're in a situation you just get a sense of like, there's something evil going on here in this place. And you get an awareness of this. Well, in Revelation chapter 9, this is that but on steroids because these things are covering the earth. Such terror. You understand why it's called woe, woe, woe. I do find it interesting, and I don't have anything to, to say about it beyond this, but how many movies are made around this whole idea of these other creatures coming and invading the earth. And, you know, yeah, it's going to happen, but it's described for us in, in Revelation chapter 9. But before we get there, I want to take a little bit of a time and do a little theology lesson on Satan and fallen angels, okay? So Satan was created by God. And he was called Lucifer and was one of the highest ranking angels. Um, Isaiah 14, 12 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. Um, and so as Isaiah is prophesying and Ezekiel prophesies about events of their day. I believe they go out into a bigger picture that reflects what is happening within Satan. Now some will debate those passages and I'm not going to get into it, but just know that it's there. But, but he was a, a high-ranking um, angel and he fell from heaven. Uh, the reference in Ezekiel, um, originally against the king of Tyre, but as you read about this description of, of this king of Tyre, this is a, not a description that fits any man. 
Ezekiel 28, beginning at verse 12 down to verse 15, says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. I believe this is a description of Lucifer before he fell. You were in Eden, the garden of God. How could that be, the, how could that be Tyre? It can be the hymn. It's, it's, it had some application, but it's going further. Every precious stone was your covering. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Verse 14, you are the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So Satan was this perfect creature known as Lucifer, of a place of influence and power. But he ended up falling. But there was a time when there in the presence of God, he was perfect in every way. Back into Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14, we see his rebellion. He says, For you've said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And it's in that pride of wanting to be greater than God that Lucifer eventually fell. What was it that caused this to take place? We don't know. Cannot say with any confidence. But let me put out one suggestion for your consideration. Don't ever be dogmatic about it. But maybe when Lucifer discovered God's plan to create mankind and make him a special object of his love and affection, knowing this, he, be, he became jealous and he began to say no way and, then, and, re, and, and stood against the creation of man. And then when he decided, I know better than you, at that point in time, he, was, he fell and he was kicked out of, of heaven. And that's where he shows up in the Garden of Eden, trying to get the special object of God's creation, made in the image of God, to fall and to go into sin. Can't prove it, but it certainly seems reasonable. In the book of Revelation, a little more information about this fall. Revelation 12, verses 3 and 4. It says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And I believe this is the nation of Israel giving birth to uh, the Messiah, and he was there to destroy him. But when he fell, he took a third of the angels with him, who we know as demons. Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9, A war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Okay, so you're getting a little, little sense for the fall. Although Satan was removed from that place of having his special place in, in, in heaven and standing before the Lord, we read in Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, that the Lord in his sovereignty still allows him to have access in the presence of God. Job 1, verse 6 now there was a day when the sons of God, this is a title for angels, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where did you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And then, of course, he then seeks to take the opportunity to tempt Job, which he does. So they are... This is kind of just a little, they, they were in heaven, they were out of heaven, they still have access, they come before the Lord looking to bring temptation. But these angels are spirits without bodies. And Hebrews indicates that the angels were created for the purpose of ministering to another created order, which was man. Hebrews 1, 13 and 14 but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? 
So they are to minister to us. And again, the idea that it's this jealousy over God's favor towards this new creation that motivated Lucifer and a third of the angels to rebel. Can't know for sure, but it's worth a consideration. So what is Satan doing now? Well, um, the same thing he was doing in Genesis 3. He's seeking to lead man to rebel and sin against God. It's kind of like, fine, you want to have a special creation? Watch what they're going to do to you. And so leading them into this, this rebellion and not only that, but I would say another controversial passage, I'm not going to get into it, but Genesis chapter 6, where we see uh, what I would believe is fallen angels beginning to cohabit with mankind. And what would be the purpose of this cohabitation? Um, it's to pollute the bloodline of mankind. Because what was said in Genesis chapter 3? That the seed of the woman would crush the head of Satan. His heel would crush the head of, uh, of Satan, his seed. And so he's tried to stop God's plan for mankind. And then the Lord says, I'm going to redeem mankind. And then from that point forward, Satan is seeking to try and destroy mankind. And to make certain no Messiah can come. Now listen, not everybody agrees with my take on, on this Genesis 6 passage. I'm not going to try to go in and defend it here at this point in time. But it is what I believe Satan was trying to do back in the, in the, you know, the pre-flood world, was to corrupt the bloodline of mankind. So no, if he corrupts the bloodline, then no Messiah can come. Can't come. And so this is what he was seeking to do. Um, God destroyed the old world, but showed grace towards mankind and sparing Noah and his family. And we read in Jude 1.6, it says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And this is where we're headed, is to these angels. So these who did not keep their, their proper domain, those who sought to corrupt the bloodline, 1 Peter 3, 18-20, still talking about this, these uh, angels cohabiting. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom, he also, excuse me, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. So these angels um, sought to corrupt mankind. We read in 1 Peter that Christ went and preached to them who were formerly disobedient in the days of Noah, saying, you lost, I came, I conquered, I won. I don't think he was offering salvation for them. And 2 Peter 2.4 it says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So there are these angels that sinned in some way. Okay, in some way during the days of Noah, they sinned and they are being held in this obuso, in this place, waiting for a day of judgment, waiting for the great day. When Jesus was conducting ministry on earth, in one of his encounters with a demoniac, um, these, and he cast them out, the spirits begged of Jesus to set them free into the swine. Remember this? And they said, um, don't send us into that place of incarceration. Well, I'll read it to you. Luke 8, verses 30 through 33. Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss into this holding place of judgment now a herd of swine was feeding there on the mountain so they begged him that he would permit them to enter them and he permitted them then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned so you have your original deviled ham experience going on right here um, yeah, I know. It's, it's whatever. This is a heavy message. Get a little something in there. 
So today, the spirits are still seeking to possess the bodies of people? This is something they're still trying to do. Matthew 20, uh, 12, verses 43 through 45. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house, that body from which he was cast, and where I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. He's in his right mind, no longer possessed. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. But they're looking for a place to inhabit. So they're not only looking at a place to possess, but they're also the purveyors of false doctrines. It's Satan. It's these fallen angels that come with their corrupt message. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. The next time you want to think about a false teaching as just a different opinion, understand what God calls it. It's a doctrine of demons that's seeking to uh, deceive. But this is the work of Satan and his fallen angels today. Not only that, um, he is seeking to oppress and resist the church of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12 talks about how we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So Satan is on the move since the day he fell. And the last verse I have for you is the warning. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So this is, hopefully, as we now get into this passage, and you've got this kind of understanding of the fall of Satan and the fall of the angels and what they were doing in the old world, what they're doing in the new world, and what's going to happen at the end of the age. Verse 1 of chapter 9. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him. Oh. So this, this star... Is not just an inanimate object. It's a him. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit. And smoke arose out of the pit. The abuso. Okay. Like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened. Because of the smoke of the pit. And this thing is opened up. And just this dark haze. Fills the air. And the sun can't even shine. This place is where the demons pled in Luke 8, 31, not to be sent. It's in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, that um, the, uh, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. This is what's being opened up. This is where those angels who didn't keep their proper domain, whatever they did, you heard my opinion, but whatever they did and sinned in the days of Noah, this is where they've been. This is the worst of the worst. The, angel, the fallen angels we deal with, they're bad and they're evil. But here's a whole new kind of evil. It is safe to say that the world has not seen this kind of evil since the days of Noah. It's going to be like any other time. So as the pit is open, open an ominous darkness fills the earth. Verse 3 through 6 says, Then out of the smoke locusts came up, Upon the earth, and to them was given the power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God. Who are the men who have the seal of God? 144,000. Anybody can be touched by these except for the 144,000. Everybody will be hit by these things. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, look at this, verse 6. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it, 
They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. And the first time in the history of man, death will not come. Sometimes death is merciful. The, the suffering stops. But for these five months, when these you know, locusts, demonic locusts, and, and, and I am of the opinion these are not just locusts, but these are actual demons that are being unleashed. And these are the ones that are coming up to torment man for these five months. They will have the sting of that of the scorpion. Has anybody ever been stung by a scorpion? Anybody? No, I haven't. Not planning on doing it so I can have a sermon illustration either. But I did read that it causes severe pain, numbness, paralysis, increased saliva, trouble breathing, trouble swallowing, difficulty thinking clearly, impaired vision, and even in some rare cases, cardiac arrest. So, yeah, all kinds of pain. There's going to be a terrifying time to be alive for five months. Let's keep on reading. Verse 7. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. So they're not your normal locusts, okay? They are like horses prepared for battle, all armored up. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. Are they lion's teeth? No, they're like lion's teeth. Is it women's hair? No, it's like women's hair. How do you describe the undescribable? You use elements that you're familiar with to try and paint the picture. And he's painting a picture, and it's a scary one. Verse 9, And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months and they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek is, has the name Apollyon. This is why I'm like, these are not just your little, you know, grasshopper that went on steroids and turned into a locust. This is, these are demons. And it's the, the, the king of the bottomless pit um, that is over them. Pretty, pretty Scary stuff. So he's identifying them and uh, painting this picture. And um, we read um, in verse 12, One woe was past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. And we're going to begin to wrap it up here. Now there's all kinds of wild interpretation for what these things are. Um, uh, you know, Apache attack helicopters and it's not, it's not any, it's this, I can tell you. I, I don't know about the, the, you know, the flying torch that lands in the river. Okay, I, I, that, maybe that is something man-made. This is not. Because the obuso is open. And that's why I took all the time to talk about it in Scripture. I mean, it's, this is not like a, a, an unknown location and you know, prison. This is like the worst prison in the world being opened up in your backyard. I mean, could you imagine if they took all the worst criminals from all the worst prisons and they let them go in your neighborhood? Child's play compared to what this is. And so, I believe these are our, our demons. Turn with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Joel. In Joel chapter 1. In Joel's day, the Lord sent a devastating uh, judgment upon their land of locusts. And these locusts, um, they just devoured the land. And, it, and it, it brought this kind of judgment upon them. Um, but these also seem to be looking forward to the day we just read about in chapter 9. And, and so, we'll begin at verse 5. And I want to read. Is everybody there found, found it? Joel chapter 1, verse 5. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And you cannot properly understand the book of Revelation if you don't know the Old Testament. I'll just read it. Verse 5. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And well, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. So the damage of the locusts. 
So you can talk about their day, but then it just seems to stretch out to a day that goes beyond theirs. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches were made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth, for the husband of her youth, the grain offering and the drink offering, had been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fell. So the real locusts are doing the real locust job. The locusts of chapter 9 in Revelation, they're not doing locust work. They're told not to touch any of the vegetation, only to harm men. Be ashamed, you farmers, well, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, then the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Well, you who minister before the altar, come lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. It was such a devastating uh, uh, you know, ravage of the land. They, land. they didn't even have the proper elements to bring a sacrifice. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Verse 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food cut off from before your eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, Storehouses are in shambles, barns are broken down, for the grain is withered. How the animals groan, the herd of the cattle are restless, because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. Now, as we move on, it seems like it shifts its focus out to a different day. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness. Doesn't that kind of remind you of the shaft opening? A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong. The like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots over the mountaintops, they leap like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them, the people writhe in pain. It's not locusts. All the faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. They Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. And the description goes on. Yeah, there was a real locust invasion that happened in Joel's day. But then Joel slips out to the great day of the Lord. To describing a day that's unlike anything that's ever happened. And I believe that that's what we're seeing. And it really is when you think about such an ominous scene. These things crawling on the wall. They're crawling through the windows. And they are set not for the fields. They're commissioned to go after men. And this is what's coming upon the world. And it's in response to the, to the judgment, uh, to, to the martyrdom that they've brought against those that were praying for the Lord to set up his kingdom. Now, it's hard to teach on these things. It's hard to talk about them. And 
And, and certainly there's no joy in delivering a message like this of the, the incredible devastation. I mean, we, we talked about a quarter of mankind being destroyed in the sealed judgments, and now a third of mankind is destroyed at one time in the trumpet blast. That equals half of the population of the world. Not to mention all the other devastation that's come from famine and from war. Man is said in Isaiah, in the last days will be more rare than fine gold. When you go through the book of Revelation, you begin to get an idea. But let's close on this note. Ezekiel 33, 11, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't find pleasure in this. But that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? But that is a good word question too. Why would you die? Turn from these things and turn to the Lord. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. People say, oh, you know, this stuff, we've been waiting for Jesus, you've been waiting for Jesus forever, and he's not coming back. It's not, why is he waiting so long? Because he's waiting for you to get saved. He doesn't want to bring this judgment. God has tarried longer than any man would ever tarry. And all of mankind combined would not tarry as long as the Lord has tarried in waiting to bring his judgment because he has no death in everything we just read about. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus did come and he did die upon the cross and took the wrath of God so that man wouldn't have to endure this wrath. And how did Jesus do it? Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God, the throne of God. Jesus joyfully died on the cross for you to redeem you, to redeem me, to redeem mankind, and he tarries and he waits because he finds no pleasure in any of this. But it's coming. And our job is to be the watchman on the wall and to let people know. Just like John the Baptist preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just like when he sent the disciples out and the 70 out, go and preach that the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, the guy on the corner with the sandwich board that says, repent for the kingdom of, hand, of God is at hand, he is God of truth. We just don't always like the way he presents it. It's usually angry and upset. But we should be preaching salvation. Salvation from what? What do I need to be saved from? From, from God's wrath. That's what we need to be saved from. And if you don't know the Lord, God is not wanting to bring judgment on you. He's wanting to bring salvation and he loves you, and Jesus joyfully died on the cross, not because the cross was fun, but because he knew what he would get by going through the cross, and that is you, and it's me, and it's mankind. That is God's love. There's so much talk on the internet right now and all over Facebook about questioning the love and the kindness of God. You know, would a loving God do this, and would a loving God do that? And you know, I don't believe a loving God would, you know, allow for hell. I don't believe a loving God would, would tell, you know. And they begin to question God. And they begin, they speak as if they are more loving than God. Be careful. I don't have all the answers for the questions that some people want to ask, and neither do you. But I do have this answer. Is that God loves me and he sent his son to die on the cross for me. Nobody else has done that. And so there's things I don't understand about the character and the nature and the ways of God. But what I do know is that he's just, he will bring judgment, and that he loves me. The things that I don't understand, I'll find out later. And I have this feeling it's going to be a really good answer if I'm even concerned about it on that day. Don't forsake what you do know. Don't forsake who you know for what you don't know. You know, you know of the Lord. Don't forsake him for the questions you don't have answers for. You know of God's love for you. And that should be enough. And the rest can be answered in, in his timing and in his way. 
Father, we thank you for your kindness and your love. We thank you that you have gone to such great lengths to save us and to keep us from these terrible days that are coming upon the world. Such darkness, Lord, such terror, such judgment. And our, we're glad that you're the one that's in charge because we know of your love and the lengths that you have gone to to redeem mankind. And we have full confidence, Lord, that you are just in all of your ways. As heaven declares, true are and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. And so, Lord, may our hearts just be filled afresh with joy that we are redeemed, that we are not subject to the, uh, these demonic hordes and the possession and the, the torment that they want to inflict. Lord, we are not appointed to wrath, but to salvation. And that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We thank you for it in the name of Jesus.